I'm Steve Usden, Washington editor of BioCentury. I'm joined today by Dr. Mark McClellan, director of the Margolis Center for Health Policy at Duke University. Dr. McClellan, I first met you when you were FDA commissioner. Then I interviewed you at CMS where you were administrator. You serve on the boards of J&J &J and Cigna, and at Duke, you're leading a number of initiatives involving the intersection of medicine, data, and public policy. So really no one has their finger on the pulse of real world data and real world evidence like you. I, I wanna start today by asking you about the use of data to combat COVID-19. First, how is data being used or how could it be used to speed the search for treatments? Steve, well, first that introduction took me back all the years that we've been, uh, we've been interacting with each other. And I think some of those early discussions involved the first steps that organizations like FDA were taking to bring real world evidence into the broader approaches to make regulatory decisions with the formation of the Sentinel Initiative, which initially used insurance claims data. And now uh, we've really seen an explosion of the availability of real-world data from various sources, not just longitudinal insurance claims, but electronic health records, registries that are collected using patient information, really a ton of data out there. And this is the first pandemic, the first major public health emergency of the era of truly digital access to broad real-world data and hopefully real-world evidence. There have been a number of groups that have come together over the, the past month or two to take data that's being generated from all of these different sources and use it to answer questions relevant to the pandemic. That's, I, I hope, an area where we can see more rapid progress in the months ahead. But already you're seeing studies that are finding associations between existing drugs and, and outcomes, drugs like famotidine, for example, the findings of higher rates of blood clotting problems and the potential impacts of blood thinning agents were first identified using some clinical real-world data sources. And there are a lot of efforts underway now, including one supported by the FDA through the Reagan Udall Foundation, their evidence accelerator program that are trying to bring together all of these groups that have really rushed to analyze some of the electronic data that has been available in this pandemic like in no other previous public health emergency. So you paint a pretty good picture there, but when I think about this, I, I also think my smartphone knows more about me than my wife does, but when I need to communicate with my doctor, he wants a fax, you know, and so is my insurance company. Are we really at the place now where data is being collected the way that it, it should to support this effort? No, we're not there yet. And one of the key opportunities or silver lining with the pandemic is that it's just as it's pushed us to make changes that we needed to make anyway, but were overcome by inertia or the old way of doing things, uh, whether it's telemedicine or other aspects of care delivery, integrating public health and, and, and healthcare better. I think the same thing is going to be true here. There's some really important reasons why people need more personalized shared information in dealing with the pandemic. Like you said, there's a lot of data about individual risk factors that people should be using to decide what's safe or unsafe for them. And conversely, uh, that kind of information can be useful for 
earlier detection of outbreaks can be useful for doing contact tracing. But these do present some technical challenges as well as some regulatory and, and economic challenges. And I think we've still got some more work to do to resolve those issues. So briefly, you, you mentioned the blood thinning. That's a good example. How did data play into that? Was that identified as a result of the collection of data or is it something that people saw in the clinic and then they went back and they looked at the data and found out that it was a real phenomenon? You know, I think it, it's some of both and that's the interaction between clinical anecdotal information and large scale real world analysis that is possible now in, in ways that weren't possible before, you know, the old aphorism, the plural of anecdote is, is not uh, data. These are not systematic necessarily and so forth. But there are methods now to take a more systematic look at, at these data. That Reagan Udall Foundation initiative has put together common data models and it builds off previous efforts at, at FDA that recognize the analysis that you're doing is only as good and reliable as the data that goes into it. So we can actually do more systematic analysis of questions where anecdotal clinical experience suggests there's an answer, but we previously didn't have an opportunity to look really fast at whether or not it's there. Now, that's not the end of the line. These are still typically observational studies that could be confounded by other factors we don't measure. And that's why it's important to use these data to inform randomized studies. So now there are randomized studies being set up on the use of blood thinning agents in, in patients with COVID-19 and, and serious complications, which will get to an even more definitive answer. My hope is that eventually we're going to get to an even more unified approach where a clinical experience matched with the fast capacity to do real-world analysis using well-defined, well-understood data and and validated methods will give a stronger sense of conclusions about safety and potential effectiveness association. And we can then use those same systems as a basis for doing more practical real world clinical trials. And it may be that this is the pandemic. This is the forcing event that, that brings that reality forward. If you look ahead, and we've written some about this, in the next few months, we're hopefully going to have a large number of agents go into clinical testing. I've mentioned a few from existing drugs. There are more coming, including monoclonal antibodies and studies using convalescent plasma and, of course, vaccines. Doing those studies is going to be a challenge and under traditional methods because hopefully by June, July, August, we're going to have the pandemic under pretty good control, or at least better control in most parts of the United States and the rest of the world, or at least the world where traditional clinical trials are usually done. So people need to be asking now, how are you actually going to get the randomized clinical trial evidence that we need desperately and need quickly on a potentially broad range of promising treatments and vaccines? It's not going to happen using traditional clinical trial networks, at least the way that they've previously been conceived with a limited number of sites and a, a protocol that requires a, a, a lot of data collection by people who are overseeing the trial when we've got so many potential treatments that may have a benefit that we want to get a quick answer on, and when we've got to do large-scale testing of hopefully a substantial number uh, of vaccines, all in a matter of months. 
So that's going to force some further changes, some further progress in the kinds of data systems that we've been talking about to take us to this next step, to incorporate more randomization into real world practical settings where we can hopefully deploy studies based on the evidence that we've just been talking about from non-randomized sources to get to more definitive answers. You've outlined a tremendous challenge and and an opportunity. Is that opportunity being seized and is it being done in an organized fashion or or is it being done by individual companies that are going to be testing their drugs or by the consortiums like Active that NIH has run or the COVID R&D consortium? I think think it's all the above to to some extent. Companies who are developing products are, are thinking ahead about what their trial capacity is going to be and recognizing that they need to account for the fact that they don't know exactly where a lot of the outbreaks are going to be. I'm actually not that worried about some of the larger, more experienced companies working on products in severe hospitalized COVID-19 patients. Unfortunately, I think we're going to continue to see a fair number of those around the country and around the world, the way that our case burden has plateaued. But those are studies that can be done relatively quickly in a hospital for studies of, say, earlier stage interventions like prophylactic treatments or treatments that might be suitable for non-hospitalized patients. That's going to be a a bit harder with those networks. I think the PCORnet, the network funded by the Patient Centers Outcomes Research Institute that set up a, a program through virtual enrollment of individual healthcare workers is a great example of what could be utilized to do more studies of prophylactics, more studies of products and people, healthcare workers who are at high risk, but unfortunately haven't yet been infected by the virus. But uh, I think we're going to need to go further than that. There's some collaborations, as you mentioned. There's one at uh, MITRE that brings together a number of groups. There's a Reagan-Udall effort. There are others, but they haven't yet made that push to more large-scale access to randomized trials. And as I said, I'm less worried about the big companies doing studies in hospitalized patients than I am about many of the the innovative smaller biologic companies that may not have like the capital and the, the wherewithal to do all this kind of advanced planning. So having more of a network to support, especially those efforts, is an important next step. I don't think we're there yet. I want to shift over really quickly for the time that we've got left. You've been the co-author of a couple of really influential reports about surveillance, setting up surveillance systems, and about what needs to happen to reopen the country. And both of those data featured very, very heavily. Briefly, what did you recommend and are any of the recommendations being put into practice? I think those the recommendations are getting there. Uh, some of our recommendations, especially related to reopening, involved more local situational awareness about the status of outbreaks and the status of testing, which is not a magic bullet, but an important source of information that enables much more targeted, much more uh, micro-focused distancing and containment rather than these broad, very disruptive approaches that we've had to rely on so far. And in particular, in terms of better surveillance data, I think we're getting there. Some of these real-world networks can help, and I'd like to see uh, expansion of something like the uh, influenza-like illness surveillance system using real-world data from emergency rooms and even clinical visits. Uh, We have a paper out last week that 
described how we could use information from so-called admission dis discharge transfer or ADT feeds uh, into public health systems, so just like they're coming into healthcare systems now to help organizations that are focused on population health track their own patients. Uh, that kind of connection between healthcare and public health would be really helpful. I think it's quite, quite feasible now. Hasn't generally happened yet, but uh, there's some interest and the surveillance systems are improving. And then I'd also highlight the, the testing data. So the, the number of tests we're doing is ramping up. That's great. That's very important for being able to help determine whether people with symptoms actually have COVID-19 and then to help enable tracing of their, their contacts. But while that test data is increasing, we still have a, a, a patchwork of mechanisms to connect the test results to public health authorities that are involved in these expanding trace programs for quarantine contacts and potentially doing further testing to contain outbreaks going forward. And the data that are reported don't include reliably critical information like the indication for a test. So uh, again, we have some proposals for expanding the availability of the test result information to support rapid uh, contact tracing and to support better situational awareness of whether states and regions really are able to test people who have symptoms, uh, including mild symptoms at a high rate, to test people who have been in close contact with those who have uh, tested positive and to have a better understanding at the local level of just what kinds of outbreaks are occurring in, in their population. I'm also concerned about the expansion of testing to non-laboratory sites. This is critical to have more valid point of care testing out in the community at pharmacies and other physician offices, other pop-up locations, uh, testing from home, testing from businesses. But if those data aren't closely and reliably connected to these same kind of electronic support systems, we're going to miss out on opportunities for further containing the, the pandemic. So we still have a ways to go in those regards, but I think the, the, the path to do it is feasible. We've laid out some specific steps to get there, and I hope to see more progress on that. Is there anybody, any entity, any individual who's going to be able to take the bull by the horns and make that happen? Because it, it needs to happen very quickly if it's going to happen. It, it does. And uh, the promising directions that we've seen are, and there, there's no one entity. This is uh, sort of all of government, all of uh, uh, private sector, all hands on deck approach. But most important are the federal government taking some steps to adopt standards and maybe create financial incentives to support the kind of data sharing that I just described. Again, the, the technical details are there. It's just a matter of getting it implemented. We think this could happen in a matter of weeks. We think more funding for healthcare providers to interact effectively with public health organizations as they're standing up, states and local governments are standing up much bigger uh, capacities for publicly supported testing and for publicly supported contact tracing. It's just such a big job. Uh, they need all the help they can get. And one important source is healthcare providers. So academic centers and some primary care practices around the country are very much involved in these efforts and in integrating responses to do testing where it's needed and to do the contact tracing. But it's uneven right now, and I think it could be supported by additional healthcare relief payments. You know, the, the primary care groups, these practices are really hurting right now. They need financial assistance anyway. I think they're going to get more. 
I think it ought to be linked to helping them invest in new ways to do this kind of population health surveillance. That'll be very valuable as we extend beyond the, the pandemic as well. So that could be a Medicare payment issue. It could be part of the additional relief that Congress is considering for healthcare providers and for states. So it's not just relief, but really advancing recovery. We need these kinds of integrated data systems just to circle back to where we started. We need these kinds of integrated data systems for uh, better health, and, and better digitally informed um, uh, care decisions, not just about COVID-19, but about all of our population health problems. Well, thank you, Dr. McClellan. I easily could have asked you questions all afternoon, but <laughs> I realize that you've got other things to do. I, I appreciate your time. I, I look forward to continuing the conversation. So great thank to be you. with you and your listeners. And somehow I doubt this is our last conversation. Thank you, Steve. <laughs> great. Thanks a lot.